This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome back to another great episode. I got a, I don't know if you remember John Clar, but he's back. We, uh, we had him on a while back with, uh, with young Katie, Kate Bowen, uh, now, uh, settled in, I guess I wouldn't call you settled in Tennessee yet, but you're in Tennessee working on getting settled. And, uh, and John, you're still just fighting the good fight up in Vermont. I, from what I understand. Yes. I'm not a trans plant um <laughs> i'm i'm rooting where i've been for a long time yeah nope here i am in vermont hello everyone. lgb transplant <laughs> uh, yeah there's just a lot of trans stuff out there and i i noticed that uh kate has transplanted that's all she uh <laughs> she transected the country to transact business in her new uh <laughs> Trans- transitional home. Taking it well. <laughs> yeah, political refugee. I think we may transfer the shoe to the other foot soon, so I better be quiet. So at any rate, just a little uh, fun. Yeah, climate. It is. Uh, there, there's been a lot of political refugees over the past uh, about four years in in the U.S. If you look at places like Tennessee, uh, Idaho. Florida and Texas for sure. Although I've been hearing a lot of bitching about people that moved to Texas uh, about how damn hot it is down there. And did you not do any research at all? Like read one, one Larry McMurtry book and it'll let you know exactly how damn hot it gets in Texas and not just, not just in South Texas by the Gulf, but like the entire state of Texas is pretty damn hot. And, um, yeah, it's kind of like travel. Australia. Sorry, it, we it's, go, ahead. go ahead. I say it's kind of like Australia. Like, it not only is it hot, but everything down there seems to want to kill you too. So it's uh, it, it's not. I mean, honestly, most of the Western United States is not a real easy place to live. It's uh, it's pretty, pretty extreme climates and and you know all the way around. Pretty harsh place to farm. Um, yeah, but I'm remind you're, you're. It's funny you mentioned Australia. It's like to those of us with any, if you did any kind of Google search at all, you see like funnel web spiders and you know mm-hmm. wild 
wild dingoes running off with your kids or whatever they are. <laughs> the dingo ate your baby. It, it, it's funny. Vermont has sort of the, a reciprocal thing. It's cold here. On our farm, a couple of years ago, it hit 43 below zero up Oof. in the Northeast Kingdom. And in fact, we call people that move there, we, we call some of them winter kill. They move up. They're like, oh, it's so green. It's like Vietnam. It's so lush. And they buy this house. And I've got all this acreage. And then one winter or one mud season, some of them get killed off by the ruts. Right, Kate? But the cold. So we call them winter kill. And so they say Yankee Vermonters are not very warm. But we just want to see if you're going to stick around long enough to be neighbors or if you're just passing <laughs> through. If you're just trans, uh, if you're just moving through. Mm. And so, but then, but I joke too, though, because it's funny. You say they go to Texas and complain about the heat and thanks for having me on. I hate to waste the time with this, but this is funny because Vermonters, <laughs> I never heard people complain so much about the cold. It's like, like you say, it's like, what, didn't you do any research about Texas at all? It's like moving to the top of, of the Himalayas and go, oh my gosh, there's, it's, it's high here. It's, yeah. I'm having elevation sickness. I should have brought an oxygen tank. Who knew? You know, Vermont's <laughs> a cold place, but that's part of how we keep our low population because nobody wants to be here. It's kind of like you know, living with the Inuit. You know, not everybody yeah. wants to eat blubber. You know, it's, and, uh, it's like Wyoming. It's beautiful country, but as soon as you step out of the the vehicle and that sixty mile an hour wind hits you, and then it just never slows down. You know, like it's just always that windy and you're just like well there's there's a reason why they only have one house member <laughs> you know they, they yeah, only have Wyoming enough like two, there are two worlds in wyoming part of it is so dry and mm -hmm. then you go to other parts and it's so lush and i'm like i can't believe i'm in the same i'm not in the same ecosystem even mm -hmm. though i made some, the same geography but uh big, then, big sky yeah and then when you get to like the like that I eighty corridor when you're when you're like the middle of the state and you're you're literally on top of the world there, but it's still just flat as a pancake. Uh, but you know you're but you're on top of the mountains at that point, and then the wind just like you can see the the snow fences, the snow blocks are set back like a mile from the interstate, and you're like, they get a lot of snow up here, and it and it travels well. Now, Kate, why don't you tell us how is the transition? going from cold to warm what's tennessee like and are you now complaining about the heat with a twang or i mean what are you doing uh yeah no it is pretty hot but we've had a really good weather year uh but we do have some big uh southern tornado hurricane almost like storms that blow through really quickly so the weather similar to vermont is it's very unpredictable um and extremely humid during the warm months so uh, in that ways, there's a lot of similarities. It's just about, you know, five to 10 degrees warmer usually though than, than Vermont, uh, was. So, you know, we're getting, we're getting used to the, the heat, trying to get used to drinking a lot more, uh, electrolytes and, you know, it's just, it's just hard to work when it's over a hundred outside in the sun. We're not really equipped for that. Yeek. Yeah. That, 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 uh, that humidity is a killer. I, uh. That's one thing about out here is there's not a whole lot of humidity even during the wet the wet seasons it it dries out pretty quick and I I like it I don't I don't care for that that humidity I don't like being sticky all day you know But it's actually not as buggy as I thought Oh really I don't know why I always I had a stereotypical idea of the south and bugs and I'm sure it's bad you know in Louisiana and those like 
bayou, muggy places, but there's actually a lot less mosquitoes than there were in southern Vermont. Huh. Which is weird. I, I would have thought there was a lot more. So and yeah. snakes snakes haven't been as bad as I thought. Um you know, they're just sort of the bugs and critters haven't been nearly as bad as I thought. There's still a lot of ticks, but they we've had a few tested and they haven't been carrying anything. So yeah. Um, I think it is yeah. true that there is a little bit less Lyme and tick-borne illness here. You get ticks. Chiggers? <laughs> you, get, you get chiggers, too? <laughs> I haven't. I have not seen chiggers. So That's what I thought when you mentioned the bugs. I've read about chiggers for years in Field and Stream. I don't know what a chigger is. I read about it as a kid. It sounded horrible. But we've had mosquitoes this year in Vermont that we've never seen. It reminds me, actually, of Wyoming. The worst mosquitoes I've ever seen were in Yellowstone. And this, yeah. this is like that. They're, but anyway, we've had, I'm sorry, I'm we've had weather uh, a lot. We must be lacking other content. Uh, I don't know. I think the weather's. Uh, I mean, we we all we all live in in this agricultural world that uh, that we we uh, toil in, and it's it's not completely dependent on the weather, but pretty damn close. <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, yeah, I, and, I can't uh, imagine making hay in this weather in Vermont. I made hay for years, and the farmers are are struggling. I mean. People in their 70s and 80s that know how to make hay are having a hard time getting bales in this year. It's going to be, uh, um, I think it's going to be a crisis. In fact, after this podcast, I'm going to get another load of squares. I'm, I'm mm. keeping a keen eye out, get them right off the field if I can. But, um, does anybody still do like the old style haystacks where they just kind of bundle it up into a pile and then, did they still do that back there? Or? Well, I mean, you got your hippie communes, you know. Uh, there's actually yeah. a guy just up the road. Well, no, I admire him. There's actually a guy. I think he's doing it all with a, uh, old school with a, a sickle, uh, you know, with a sickle, a scythe. And, oh, really? Uh, he, yeah, and he actually this year he's got a, he's got these little racks he made out of sticks, and it holds it up off the ground. And then on uh -huh. each one, he's got like a little cap on it. And I think he's only got a cow and a few sheep and a goat or something. I haven't met him, but. But he's not doing it on a very large commercial scale. I can say that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and there are Amish actually. Some Amish, a lot of Amish people have moved to Vermont, particularly in the Northeast Kingdom where I live. They bought our old farm. They've bought up huh. a lot of farms there. Interesting. Um, yeah, it, it's crazy. And then, like when you when you see the the media narrative on this summer, you know, it's uh, just doom and gloom. You know. Phoenix had 31 days uh, straight with uh, over 110 degrees. But also, it's another thing. It's like, I, I kind of expect it to be 110 degrees in Phoenix uh, in July. I mean, because I've done a little bit of research, and I know that Phoenix sits squarely in a, in a desert desert. Not like a high desert like I live here, but a literal desert. And it's the fifth largest city in the U.S. And you're like, well, maybe there shouldn't be that many people living concentrated in that one area in the desert you know it's uh it and then i was um i was reading about how they you know it, it was it was a pretty severe uh heat wave but particularly with phoenix and las vegas there's so much heat like the heat doesn't dissipate because of that of all the concrete and steel and glass all concentrated so it just creates this like dome over over vegas and phoenix and then as the the heat wave dissipates it still stays over those cities because because of all the the man-made uh things that make the conditions worse on the ground like we were talking before so when it comes to the climate change deal 
I think there is a a case to be made uh, for for man made climate change, but not like they're talking, like the the warming of the earth or whatever, and changing of the weather patterns. I think those are going to change on their own. But the on ground uh, effects that man has a on the ground effects, man has a like a huge huge hand in that. And like we were talking before, and I, I always point to the Dust Bowl because that was the greatest man made natural disaster that the world has ever th- seen, as far as I can tell. They they plowed up thirty million. I think it was thirty million acres of of the Great Plains that had always been grassland, and uh, they killed all the buffalo. They they uh, they replaced them with with cattle, which is I mean that's kind of a I wouldn't say it's a one one for one swap, but it's pretty close. You know they they they're not the same animal. They act quite quite a bit the same, and um, but then when you have all that grassland gone. And you know, it's and it was a big government program to settle the West. You know, the rain will follow the plow. That's what they they said about Bacca County, Colorado, where I I, I grew up. And um, <clears throat> it did for a few years in the wet season. Then the drought hit. And uh, one another thing about the Great Plains is the wind blows pretty much all the time. <laughs> like there's not a lot to stop it. You know, if, uh, there's there's some trees here and there, but those are mostly. Um, those are I wouldn't say invasive, but they're non-native species of of trees, and they were planted by settlers. But other than that, it's just it's flat. Maybe some rolling hills here and there, but it the wind blows, and when when you uh, when you have a ten-year drought and no nothing to hold the soil down, boy, it created I mean just a tremendous disaster. And then I I, I feel this kind of the same way. What uh, like we haven't learned anything. Uh, they they improved their farming methods a little bit with cover crop and no-till farming, but then they introduced widespread irrigation, and they're slowly but surely, and not even that slowly anymore, but just draining the aquifer completely dry. And it's like, well, at one point or at some point, that that whole Great Plains region is going to turn into like a Sahara type desert because there's just it's going to be uninhabitable for humans at, at some point. And but they they don't talk about about that. They talk about cow farts and and your and getting a gay little electric car instead. But like that that seems to be a massive issue that is they're they're finally starting to pay a little bit of attention to it, but that's only because of California and how they're bitching about they don't have enough water, but They've had a record amount of 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 uh, moisture this year uh, through throughout the the winter and the summer both, and it all just ran off. Like their their reservoirs and stuff are in in severe dis uh, disrepair, and they could have captured a tremendous amount of water from from this past uh, this past wet season, you know, winter and winter spring and and summer all all of it. They've had tremendous amount of moisture and. They've, I don't know, they just not done much with it. Uh, it it's, it's been pretty, pretty insane to watch, really. Well, I, I think you just, uh, you just recount a few issues there, but let me, <laughs> let me chime, <laughs> in, chime, chime in a bit. Um, interestingly, though, it's interesting what you observe about the, gra- the grazing of cattle having replaced um, bison. I'm not sure they exactly did. The bison were rotationally grazing, and they yeah, roamed the plains, right? 
they were actually, as I recall, by the 1890s, and we had also the advent of this wonderful technology of barbed wire fence, which, you know, it was a lot easier than building stone walls, especially in the desert mm. uh, on the range. And um, from my recollection, there was huge overgrazing that was part of the problem. Uh, there was, of there the, was uh, some, yeah. And, um, but also, <clears throat> it was a compounding of government product, uh, uh, government policies that destroy mm-hmm. the earth in the name of short-term profits of overplowing. And so how do, why are we not focusing on these things? I was working on a piece today um, about how the climate alarmists want to decide how it is, which forms of supposed climate pollution, carbon, greenhouse gases will be regulated, i.e. cows or your cars, the working guy's pickup truck. But mm-hmm. not their jet travel or their golf courses or their lawn mowing or their uh, ski chalets. If they really cared, would they maybe talk about the um, the the net zero carbon costs of carpet bombs and white phosphorus in Ukraine, or, or maybe the, look at the, the methane leaking into the ocean and then the atmosphere from the Nord Stream getting blown up? Which sort of seems like they don't worry about the environment very much when it comes to warfare or anything else. And now you've got NASA. I mean, if anybody polluted the planet and outside the extraterrestrial field, it's NASA are now climate experts. Pretty soon we're going to have the military industrial complex explaining how they're going to use all their technologies to help, to help save us from you know the sun. Um, hey, but they will have a black trans man explaining all of this to us. And so we should feel good about that. Well, they do, and they have to. So, so they have to pick which ideology they want to run with. Except that you just hit on it, Matt. All the ideologies weave into the same. Uh, mm-hmm. NASA is not just going to move into climate ideology. They've gone woke. They have stated yeah. that one of their top goals now for their space plan is to put a, a BIPOC person in space. They have two more planned missions for the next two years. We've got all this heat wave, the heat wave, the heat wave, but we're not going to hold off on our missions. How? What is the greenhouse gas output of a? A, a trident is it is it trident trident now um how much does it cost in environmental pollution and co2 and the answer would be then well but but we're going to study the planet with black eyes from the sky and we're going to yeah. save the planet it, you got it you a lot of these things are internally inconsistent and this is of course why stalin and others you know have all their purges and it's already starting to happen on the left here when the white mm-hmm. people clamoring on behalf of black people against white people suddenly go, but wait a minute, I didn't mean me white people, I meant them white people. And and so similarly on the climate change, now what you hit on as well though that I find fascinating is, we are told that the dinosaurs were destroyed by a volcano. And last year we had a a volcano that I've been studying in depth called Hunga Tonga something or other, it's a longer name, it's a really neat name, Hunga Tonga. I've been making Hunga Tonga jokes. But if you look at it, it is never, it's unprecedented. Uh, this is according to NASA when they reported on it last year and when NASA had actually underestimated the size of this, this volcanic eruption, which, by the way, was at the bottom of the ocean, like five or six hundred feet down, vaporized just millions of tons of water in the atmosphere. And yeah. at the time, NASA predicted that this would cause global warming and that it could happen for several years. One of their atmospheric scientists. But more. It is demonstrated that this thing is off the charts. No, no satellite NASA technology has ever recorded a geological event of this size. It went about 37 miles into the atmosphere, meaning it pierced the stratosphere. It peered the mesosphere. 
It pierced the troposphere. It went through the entire atmosphere, totally disrupting the water, um, the, the amount of water in the atmosphere, which involves numerous chemical uh, uh, interactions, which they will now study so they can put it in their models because they have no modeling for this. It yeah. also it, it increased the amount of water in the atmosphere, in the stratosphere by 13%, they've now estimated, a five-fold increase in aerosols. So we know from volcanoes and the dinosaurs, right, that volcanoes eject uh, debris into the air that can cause cooling. They, they send sulfur into the air. They send a concoction to the air. There's a whole area of study called volcanology, I think. And I thought it was about Dr. Spock, but apparently it's about, you know, volcanoes. And, and what else does it throw into the air? Well, to hear NASA now, this heat wave and all this sudden rain is human. It's anthropomorphic. It's anthropomorphic to send ships with people of any color into the into the sky and then leave your debris along the way, okay? Like you're in a highway where you can litter freely. But it's not necessarily anthropomorphic. If, if in fact, a volcano charged our atmosphere with water and is charging all this, that would be good news, at least. We don't... But there's no scientific connection saying, well, look, we had a boom economy and last year humans increased their their use of fossil fuels by 14%. And so that's why, no, they're not even making the connection, let alone the causation. In other words, mm-hmm. that there isn't even a bump in human activity to, to explain this. And right away, they rush to their mantra. Oh, oh gosh, it's white supremacy. That's what made it warm up. Can't you see this? Right. This is a cult. This is not science. And farmers, you know, I think instinctively can see this because any common sense and farmers, I'm sorry, but farmers tend to have more common sense. We, well, we get, and we get also punished we, more often when we lack it. Right. And we also know uh, being whether whether you're farming, ranching, whatever, like the only way to break a drought is a large amount of moisture and usually comes in a pretty short amount of time. I mean, that, that's how it's always happened is like drought means no moisture. For an extended period of time and the only way to reverse that is you know an, a a large amount of precipitation uh i.e a drought buster and that's what we had this winter here i mean we had um i think we had somewhere around 18 months without really any pre- uh, measurable precipitation and then wow. we went to record amounts of snow and rainfall this winter and it it sucked don't get me wrong i was i was happy to have the moisture but as you know it, working in that stuff it it's not fun like you were talking with your your cattle uh like a dairy farmer not being able to 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 get his cattle into the barn <clears throat> we had several pins in our feedlot that were just unusable cuz we had enough we had plenty of moisture in where we're at but then we had all the runoff coming up off the desert and we're we're right up against a river and of course we can't we can't pollute the river by letting you know our our uh our runoff going there but in the meanwhile like the the river's brown and and surging and like there's sediment from everywhere that that ends up in the river and we could have just cut a little little trench and drained drained our excess water into the into the river and we would have had a lot better winter like our our death loss would have been nowhere near as severe we would have been able to utilize our pin space a lot better and it would have made no noticeable difference in the sediment and the and and uh, the amount that we would have released into the river would have been negligible at at most. You know, it, it would have been almost it, there was just such a, a huge amount of water that what we would have added into it would have made no difference at all. 
But instead, due to these environmental regulations, we just had to let it pile up and back up into the pens, and then we had to constantly shift shift cattle around to and and try to try to clean you know just shit out of these pens to make them livable again. And I mean, it was a rough it was a rough winter, you know. It, it but we needed it, and now like now we're we're really slow because there's enough there's enough grass out uh out outside that and feed prices are so high that it it doesn't make a lot of sense for for anybody to feed cattle inside right at the moment but that all that all that all happened because we ended a drought you know we 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 broke a drought and that that's just how that's how it happens you know and the they continually try to convince us that this is something new. Like, uh, it's, it's just a shock that it gets hot in the Northern Hemisphere in July. Weird how that works, you know? Like, they act like well, that's never think, happened before. Well, and I think whatever the causes, the antidotes are the same. I think certainly we see more and more evidence that industrial methods of agriculture are mm-hmm. causing us to lose carbon, but also soil and increasing yeah. erosion and its capacity to retain water. And the more water soil retains, the less you have to use uh, by uh, irrigation, pumping water up out of your aquifers, which, as you point out, are absolutely in peril. And you don't hear about mm-hmm. it. Um, and of course, so I'll share this with you from Joel Salton in his recent blog. Um, he's writing about regulations where the EPA is recommending that you not have water collecting ponds on your property because ducks and other wildlife may land there and spread avian flu. Watch out. They don't want you to have your own water. They want you to put in some system that they'll pay for. Now I've been to Joel's ponds and he has a system of ponds. They're having a drought there and he's releasing his water because he collected it. Um, Common sense solutions countered by rules made by bureaucrats who don't really understand um, the environment and, and don't have flexibility in circumstances like you described where you had too much rain the, the you know the rules should have been suspended but again we've got technocrats that's what the green new deal is we've got a mm-hmm. global effort to control all agriculture to protect us and if there's anything we know it's that that's the opposite of the solution the solution is local so my book is about it's about small farms medium-sized farms really the medium-sized farms are the lifeblood and they're the ones that have suffered the most and that that book's called small small farm republic buy it on amazon right now oh yeah i should five, plug my book five star rating uh so far so that i mean that's that that's good um i will be i'll be buying a a copy when we get done here uh, i'd like to what you you didn't read it yet i haven't what, yet what, no what are we doing here okay <laughs> okay you know challenge i know i, I failed i failed <laughs> <laughs> No, no, bail him out. Ask me hard questions. I don't know. Um, well, I, guess, I, guess I wonder. I wonder why. Why do you think it is when Vermonters should have an intimate knowledge of their own history? And I mean, I'm assuming that all of the leftist elites who moved there from California did a really good job um, researching the local history because they love indigenous culture and. and rich cultural heritage so of course all of these leftists who moved to new england researched the history and anyone who has family in vermont knows about the year without a summer in 1860 16 and how that was caused by a volcano Mm -hmm. so why why isn't this being looked at as well especially in new england where people would have a connection to that well you know you're setting me up right there and and in something that is is of that you're sensitive about which is the systematic 
colonization, <laughs> gentrification, and destruction of the Green Mountain state of Vermont into the new Martha's Vineyard. And that's what you're really talking about. And no, they don't know about 1816. They should know about 2023. This is the year without a summer. Remember, we hear about the drought, all the headlines, MSN, everywhere, drought, drought, drought. Not in Vermont. We're having the coldest drought of our life. And Kate also knows that I am of Abenaki heritage and that my family have farmed right here where I sit. My great, 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 great grandfather is, is a short walk from here still. Uh, hi, Solomon Stoddard. Um, there is a culture here and we're not white supremacists and there's a lot of white poverty and uh, self-reliance that's all been abandoned. But here's one for you, because I, I think we really are hitting at something that's really important in this cultural battle is that when you destroy local culture and agriculture and agricultural communities, you urbanize people and you cause them despair and misery, dependency. You even cut them off with the concrete jungle from their microbiome. We're learning more and more scientifically mm -hmm. that your microbiome is not confined to your gut. It extends right to the soil which you want to sequester carbon in, by the way, just not to save the planet. You want to save the soil, save the water, feed the microbes. But here's one. Kate, uh, Matt, you may know that Kate's a provocateur, the troublemaker. A little bit, yeah. She likes to send things to me that she knows will agitate me and wake me up howling in the middle of the night in a sort of dark despair. So she sent me an article recently from one of those flatlanders, a woman named, I think, Madeline Cowan, who has moved to Vermont, decided to become a writer about all things nonsensical and wrote a long piece about why Vermonters should boycott dairy products, specifically identifying milk, cheese, and ice cream, and instead eat substitutes like oat milk and almond milk and Ben and Jerry's owned by, is it Unilever now? Artificial yeah. non-ice cream and all the chemical delights that come with it. This is a person who is so disconnected. And this is a perfect, I think, segue, but a summary of where we are in our culture. This is a person who knows nothing of how Vermonters survived the Great Depression, what it is to milk a cow. The heading of her article is why, or I forget the exact title, but because Kate started this, pull it up, Kate, if you can. But, but the, uh, the article got argues right that why doesn't Vermont have more boy cows? Now, some people <laughs> call them, call them um, bulls, you know. Um, they're only, they're, we're by gender, you know, although... We do have free Martins, but let's not go into the intersectional world of free Martins right now. If we got ranchers out there, they know where I'm oh, going. Yeah. Hormones matter. Hormones matter in the womb. And so do endocrine disrupting chemicals from the soy meat that they would replace our cows with. Yeah. This woman wants to get rid of all cows in the name of saving boy cows from being slaughtered. This is as long as humans have had our 10,000 year relationship with cows for food and milk and clothing, that there was a destiny for the boy cows that was unpleasant. But it is why we fed them, cared for them, and kept them like we were their slaves until they were old enough to eat. Why our religious traditions, you know, thank the Lord in the you know monotheistic traditions for mm -hmm. that, and have religious traditions around reverence and and treating the animal humanely. So instead, we have people who know nothing about animals who in their, in their insane zeal want to kill all animals because just like they want to kill babies in the name of saving babies from a hard life, PETA and others, they're calling to eliminate cows in Ireland, in, in Holland, everywhere, to save yeah. the planet and to save them from suffering. 
They're driving up the price of food for poor people, for pigs, because they want gestation crates that the National Association of Swine Veterinarians say are unwarranted and will not help pigs. You'll have increased mortality from piglets to die off. So you've got people that know nothing about farming making all the rules about food mm. and they're going to starve themselves. They're toxifying themselves. They're eating the Ben and Jerry's toxic migrant justice stuff while they bash the farmers they depend on. They're destroying mm. when they're going to import food, import milk from Vermont. Meanwhile, by the way, and Kate doesn't know just how much she she's seeing it now. She, she ticked me off with this. Don't you send me these barbs anymore, Kate Bowen, because the price <laughs> of milk, is $18.33 right now per hundredweight. And your cost of production is somewhere around probably 23 or more, uh, especially with, you know, spiking costs for so many, you know, fertilizers, fuels, taxes, Vermont's increases mm -hmm. taxes. So farmers are just absolutely, when all we hear about is the migrant workers, they get paid. They get paid a fair wage plus housing. I see them everywhere. I passed them this morning. They get very well treated. And, but the farmers are losing Dairy farmers in Vermont right now, of which we have very few left, are losing six or seven dollars per hundredweight. If you're milking thirteen hundred cows and you're putting out ten thousand pounds a day, okay, so you're losing what's that? A hundred? You're you're losing you're losing a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we can do the math. Where where's the unionizing? Where's the where's the parental leave for the dairy farmers? Where's the minimum fifteen dollar wage? Where's there even an awareness? in the Ben and Jerry corporate chemical designed um, toxic food factory that they're munching on, where is there even a comprehension or a consciousness of that disconnect? So you've got people in Vermont clamoring to destroy the very foundation of Vermont. And I hope you're happy, Kate, getting me all agitated. <laughs> well, and, and at the same time, when you look at like the, the big farm area of the country, like the Midwest, it's all it's subsidized farming. It's all based on on uh, monocrop, <laughs> row crop uh, type uh, soy, corn, and wheat. Wheat's an important product because, uh, like, although the gluten and stuff is not particularly good for for you in the long run, it's quite literally the cheapest food food stuff there is. Is flour like all all you need is a is a bag of flour and some water, and you can make some hard tack to keep you alive for for. You know, as long like not not going to be good health, but it'll keep you alive. It's a it's a very important food crop. Corn, I would say as well, is a pretty important food crop. More on the feed, like animal feed side of things. It's a it, it's an important crop, but there's also it's a mandate that so much of this corn goes into ethanol production, which ethanol is a terrible energy source. Mm -hmm. It's a terrible fuel. Uh, your cars don't run as well. You don't get near the efficiency on it as you would with, with regular gasoline. Um, those Iowa corn farmers ain't going to give that subsidy up without a fight. We've already seen that. And, uh, and why would they, why would they, but there, but there's no incentive for them to grow anything other than corn and soybeans. And it, and it grows fine there for, uh, for now, as long as you keep pumping all these, these fertilizers on it. But there's, We've made the the American farmers so much less resilient than than they used to be. I mean, I remember when when farmers used to be tough, hard people, and now I mean, you're just driving an oversized robot and and watching Netflix for the most part. I mean, you have a a couple 
about a month period about throughout the year where where harvest is uh is a really really tough hectic chaotic time planning is as somewhat along those lines but the rest of it like how, how many fat midwestern farmers have you seen i mean damn near all of them because that they they don't get that they're they're not resilient anymore it's all it's all uh, a lot of them almost pray that they don't have to go harvest their crop and they can just collect the insurance premium instead and 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 it's just it's such a it's a sad state of agriculture that we've we've uh, allowed ourselves to get in. Well, it's it's rather dystopian, and and I think that the the middle is the key, and that's what my book is about. And it's not about going against the big farmers or the small uh, or conventional versus organic, but favoring those those divisions keep us from action. Though my book does advocate phasing out those. Uh, subsidies, those long-standing subsidies mm-hmm. for monocultures, and diverting some of that money to small farms, family farms, as reparations, okay, for decades oh. of artificially subsidizing the industry. Well, but really, it's a, it's a reparation that you can link to the actual generation mm-hmm. and people that suffered the harm. It's not mm-hmm. 150 years ago, and it's current policy and not ancient policy, mm-hmm. and it's it's policy that we're still building up as opposed to we all would agree would be bad in the case of, you know, uh, racism or redlining or mm-hmm. Jim Crow laws. But we live like sharecroppers now, many Americans. You know, I've oh, got yeah. a piece of land that, that has been in my family since my great, 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 great grandfather. And I saw the timbers myself and built the house. But if I don't pay the tax bill every year, they're going to come and take it. And that tax bill is becoming like its own mortgage. And where does that mm-hmm. money go? To? It goes to bureaucrats who tell farmers and everybody else how to live. Um, but so it's kind of a vicious cycle of the dragon eating its tail. And you mentioned corn and my book goes into this very much. Uh, there's corn and then there's corn. Uh, you didn't mention that it's not only dependent on um, chemical applications, that these modern farmers are more like farmers of chemicals, because not only do they need the diesel to run the tractors and the fertilizers that are um, to replace cows, by the way, the fertilizers that are made from natural gas, which is methane, urea. Yeah. Um, but also with GMO crops, now you need the chemicals of glyphosate or Terminator and, and other technologies, and you need a constant application of other chemicals without which it won't work. So more and more, the farmers look like they've been swept into what the consumers are consuming, which is a high fructose corn syrup that mm. they then want to, they, they subsidize and then they want to tax you for drinking it and getting fat. And it reminds me of, a will I'll paraphrase Wendell Berry, who wrote in an essay once that if corporate America could design a system to feed you directly from the factory through a tube into your navel, they would implement that system. Mm-hmm. And with John Kerry and other climatologists joining Bayer and Monsanto, DuPont and Dow at the World Economic Forum to control all farming in the name of saving us from carbon dioxide, have you? if you have not woken up to your Huxley Orwell novel, uh, the novel, not new, but the novel, the fiction story that you live mm. in. It's time yeah. to wake up. And um, that's what the book's about. And that's what your podcast's about. That's what I think more people are waking up to. But where are the farmers' voices? Because the farmers, as you say, have lost their resilience. They're dependent on this on the, the subsidies. They're dependent on the cheap food. And yeah, maybe they're watching Netflix. I don't have time. But um, maybe they're watching it while they drive around their tractors, right? Because yeah. it's already... I, I, hit- you know, that's oh, exactly then. what happens. I know because I know a lot of these guys and and um, these a lot of the same people that that are out there and 
like I said, there, I know, I know personally, and it's anecdotal evidence, but I, I can tell you that it's widespread. Uh, there, there are, there are literally farmers that just like hope they don't have to break out their combine and go harvest that wheat crop because it's not going to make anything. Uh, the wheat prices are, are, are no good. So they'd rather just, uh, collect an insurance premium and then, uh, you know, let some, some rancher graze, graze the, the, the stocks and, and then not, and not that it's a bad thing, but then there's also, it just, there, there's no pride in that work anymore. I mean, when they're, when they're literally praying to God that they don't have to go harvest that. It's, uh, it's, well, their tractors have become coffins. <clears throat> and what mm-hmm. they're really doing is they become conduits for taxpayer money funneled through the farm bill and other federal agencies to yep. chemical companies who ultimately are the profit makers. You know, you don't you don't buy grain from the from Cargill at a loss. Cargill doesn't sell grain at a loss. They don't mm-hmm. sell you Roundup at a loss. It's it's not a it's not an option. Mm-hmm. But farmers are constantly victims of the commodity prices. And so they get squeezed in between. So in the end, what they really are is, 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 um, slave laborers for the application of toxic soil and human and, and, um, ecosystem destroying chemicals, uh, enslaved in what they perceive to be their own land, but they don't really even own that. So well, why don't we integrate them back to the land as well as the cows? That's what we should. And, and you, you, uh, you also make a good point cause they're, they're commodity farming. Uh, which commodities, they have like maybe three different classifications throughout a single, like corn has, you know, they have different, but you're, you're not, you're not farming a, or you're not producing a diversified product. Uh, it's just, it all gets lumped into the same thing. So <clears throat> there, there might be slight differences in the, the amount you get paid for it, but essentially you're, you're farming for the same price as your neighbor is and, and his neighbor is. And, and, you know, somebody in Illinois is farming for the same price as somebody in Kansas. And, um, it's kind of the same thing with the cattle market too, is every, every Western rancher in particular that I know of, they, they take pride in their cattle. They, they all raise a different type of cattle depending on what, what their, uh, their environment's like. So, you know, out here, that they they it it co- it takes about about a hundred acres to raise a pair out here because it's just very sparse uh, vegetation. So those mm. cattle have to work to go to eat. And um and you if you go right out through the high desert here, it's sagebrush and not a whole lot else. And and you look at these cattle and they're they don't look underfed. They don't look malnourished. But you look around and you go, I don't know how they make it, but they do. Like the the cow is a fascinating animal. They're aggravating to no end, but they you can <laughs> almost feed them rocks and they will still turn it into some sort of nutrition. <laughs> you know, like they they're and they are truly amazing at what they can convert into usable feedstuffs. And um and but then, you know, you go like in the southeast where or place like Vermont, where too much rain is a kind of a common problem for you for y'all. And uh, and so like you you very rarely have a I, from what I understand. Anyway, this is my, me kind of speaking from ignorance, but you don't have a, a real issue of not having grass to for for your cattle out, out in that part of the world. I mean, it's uh, you have a. a Typically, you have an abundant amount of, of moisture, 
which leads to good vegetation out here sparse rainfall and uh you got to make do with what you got and <clears throat> it's uh but at the same even though you're they're raising all these cattle different cattle for different purposes they all end up in a feedlot and then eventually the the slaughterhouse and they're sold on commodity prices so even though you have a, a huge diversity of cattle if you go to any of the the major feedlots in in like kansas texas um colorado area <coughs> nebraska you'll see cattle of all shapes sizes color you know long ear short ear uh they all they they all get graded you know different so there's a slight deviation in what you get paid but essentially you're you're selling a uniform product or to a uniform market as opposed to a diversified market and and you're starting to see that break down a little bit with uh with more more guys more producers going trying to go directly to consumers with their product rather and and cutting out the middleman <clears throat> but we got a long way to go to 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 break that cycle and um and the cards are stacked against them with the uh, with these huge corporations whether they 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 meet in a back room and decide prices or not they still they put their thumb heavily on the scale to benefit themselves and why wouldn't they i mean well and, uh, and we mentioned one they do it with subsidies the other way they mm -hmm. do it is with regulatory structures mm -hmm. uh in the name of self and safety and health that, that are uh business crushing for small producers yep. and and actually that's actually why if you look at the demographics we do have a lot of small farmers if the, US, the USDA will count you if you produce more than $1,000 a year in farming goods, which, you know, most pot growers do that with one plant, but I don't think they count that food. But that's a pretty, <laughs> that's not a meaningful contribution to the economy. So the middle guy who is shrinking uh, doesn't get the benefit of all of the regulatory, or th th they have the burdens of the regulatory problems, and they don't get the benefits of the subsidies as much as the big guy. The little guy doesn't need the subsidies and may not have to suffer through the regulatory. So we see the same kind of, you know, like as in wealth disparity, we see sort of this farming disparity. Now, an interesting thing I want to throw out, though, for your listeners about cows, and I, and I don't judge anybody for raising a cow, whatever business model they use, it's, you know, it's not for me to ethically tell them what to do. But I think you're right that most farmers do take pride in having healthy, well-cared-for animals. It also mm -hmm. happens to be how it's more profitable, whether people are paying me for it hanging or as breeding stock. And, mm -hmm. and I've learned the hard way just how hard it is to put marbled fat on a grass-only animal. And it's something I do take pride in. You know, it, 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 yeah. there's, a, there's an art and thinking to it. Farmers aren't dumb. But you know who's dumb are people that say that cow farts are a problem. Can we follow <laughs> the cow fart for a moment? Because yeah. first of all, you already talked about different kinds of cows. Well, there's a big difference between a confinement raised cow and a rotationally grazed buffalo or cow, you know, mm -hmm. mentioning that contrast again. And so right now, in fact, I just read a study and I'm going to write an article about this because I think it's so telling the study. It confirms what Wendell Berry has been telling us. This is a Harvard study that determined that you couldn't possibly shift the entire uh, cow population of America to a grass fed operation. There's not enough land because we all, you know, pollute it now with our lawnmowers and you know, parking lots. And so therefore mm -hmm. we have to go with Bill Gates, synthetic meat. Well, did it ever occur to the Harvard shrink or the Harvard brilliant people that maybe you don't have to shift the entire system to one or the other, and that there's something called balance. And that just, as you say, different climates and environments require different acreages. You know, not everybody's a good place to have it. You know, mm -hmm. that's why our pork 
produced in certain states and and why California grows almonds. I mean, this you look at the you know what California does with vegetables. So um, why would we have a one size fits all? But when they attack cows and AOC starts farting out of her mouth about gas, <laughs> um, she doesn't know what she's talking about. But to the extent she does, she's talking about some some uh, contrived and biased studies that are maligning cows based on the consequences of industrial confinement feed operations. Okay, we could look at pigs and chickens too. Mm -hmm. We don't hear about pig and chicken gas. Why? Because they already control the pigs and chickens through controlling all the grain. They have the patents for the grain. All of these grains are monocultures. They are patented. They do mm -hmm. have not patented my cow's DNA. They can't patent my cow's DNA. They can patent the synthetic soy-based synthetic fetal tissue bovine creation in a lab to save us from, from climate change, totally control us and profit from us. That they can own the DNA to. So what's the real motive? Now, let's ask about the cow farts. Now we've compared these cows. Let's take cows and put them back to the pasture where they deposit their manure while they're, as you say, traveling widely to eat. They're traveling widely to deposit their manure. No mm -hmm. truck required, no steel tank, no diesel fuel. And, and then it's going to go back to the earth and replenish the, the microbiome. It's actually going to build soil. So not mm -hmm. just fertilize with nitrogen and other and, and phosphorus and potassium, but build the soil create, feed the, the, the microbiome. Um, synthetic applications of fertilizers that like urea don't do that. Urea is made from natural gas, as we say, which is methane. So you're mm -hmm. just switching methane's AOC. You're eliminating yeah. the manure. And the manure right. is a physical compound. It is estimated by the Land Institute, West Jackson in Kansas and others that we're losing two to, it, it, say three to five tons per year, per acre of GMO corn. 92 million acres of corn a year. That's just corn. So yeah. that's 450 million tons of lost topsoil a year that you're not going to replace with urea applications or glyphosate or the other chemicals that, that uh, AOC and the rest should bathe in, in their joyful liberation of us from carbon dioxide. It's absolute insanity. And every farmer and any consumer who knows how to boil an egg should be able to figure out that there's something else going on here and that cows are the solution, not the problem. So why are you going after the cows? And why right. are you ignoring the volcano? Yeah. Yeah, that that as well. And and when it comes to like the, the industrial cattle, like and I, I'm I'm a big proponent of of uh confined feeding for for steers for for in the traditional way that you're they're on feed for 45 maybe 6 months and then they go to slaughter you you put some fat on you put some marbling on them and it it alleviates say like these guys out here that that, that run on the desert once they wean that calf they can and they can send him to feed that the faster that that mama can cow can can get back to condition and and ready for another one and and they can they can serve their forage now, when you have a hundred thousand head feedlot, that that's a little—it's too much. I've worked in one of those, and it's too much. Uh, but I've cleaned enough feedlot pens, and uh, and where a lot of people say, "Well, that it stinks really bad." But when you get to looking at the layer of manure, and you're just like, "That's still living." Like a farmer can use that, and a lot of farmers do, and and it's uh, that's another thing that doesn't get brought up when they when they. Uh, when they really hammer these confined animal operations, like, well, 
yes, there is a buildup of, of manure, but it doesn't go to waste. Like we, we have manure stockpiled right now and it just it's a matter of time until a farmer needs it and they come they spread it on their fields it helps keep the dust down in the winter natural fertilizer for for uh for a natural product and and so if there's no reason it can't work like all these things can't work in uh you know in harmony as um with nature i mean there it makes sense for to to ship some cattle to us to a central location and put the final touches on them before they go into the, to the food chain. I, for me anyways, there, that can be, that can be severely, severely uh, taken advantage of and, and turned into a really, really awful situation. But more than that, what we've seen is the, the further consolidation of like the big, big, uh, big grain, uh, big beef and big dairy. Uh, anymore like the the Holstein steer is becoming almost uh an anomaly because the way the way they do uh, artificial insemination with with sex semen and uh and eventually and we 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 breed a lot of cat, uh dairy cattle uh so if this if this animal is a terminal animal where she she's going to milk out till she's done and then she goes to slaughter they're not keeping any of her her uh, calves as replacement she gets bred with beef semen and so you have a you have a Holstein Angus cross, <coughs> which they they marble um, just about as good as as any purebred Angus or or uh, or Hereford or whatever your your traditional meat breeds. Um, this this crossbred calf will will marble just about the same way. They take a little bit longer to feed out, but most of those those cattle have never seen a blade of grass in their life, and. Um, well, they they that's what that's where the the beef market is headed to. Now you see these these huge dairies like that that dairy explosion in in Texas. That was it was like a million and a half square foot with thirty thousand head of dairy cattle all under one barn. Um, and what what caused the the huge deal was a was a vacuum truck caught on fire, which in itself wasn't a big deal, but they they sprayed this foam insulation on the inside of that barn and it, it erupted just like, like you wouldn't believe that fire spread so quick. 17,000, I think is what they said. 17,000 had a dairy cattle dead. And, uh, and those, that wasn't instantaneous. Like there was somebody that had to come along afterwards and, and put a bullet in their head to, to stop the suffering of uh, thousands upon thousands of head. And it's like, Maybe it's not a good idea to have thirty thousand head of cattle under one structure. Maybe that's not a great idea. Yeah, even if it's just for for safety reasons. But I just also can't really imagine working at a place like that as well. Like I, I, I don't know what the quality of life is for the crew that that feeds. I don't know thousands of calves a day. Yeah, it's it's and and the type of disease. I mean, I would just think that it you risk so much more disease. I mean, it's like an orphanage or something. I mean, it's just it's a it's a setting that isn't natural at all. So there could be a blending of the two. I would think if, but that will probably not happen with USDA mm -mm. Uh, the way it well, is today. Yeah, and that's why when USDA in California and others decide that they're going to decide what's best for animal welfare, they've already botched it so horribly. On what authority? Do they premise their their right. um, their 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 policies to 
improve. Now, in the end, though, guess what? The same two solutions or the two areas, which is part of our cultural tension, which is, you know, free markets and independent response, individual responsibility. Those are the solutions to these problems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, someone would say, well, look, look, they're maximizing profit. Well, that wasn't a free market. You know, it's not a free market. It's been a heavily biased, uh, really a fascist market where corporations uh, ally with with captured agencies. It's not just Wall Street. It's not just big pharma in the CDC. We're talking about Monsanto, now Bayer, talk mm-hmm. about lipstick on a pig, and other corporations and Cargill and mm-hmm. uh, Syngenta and Dow and DuPont and the others. They're all right there at the feed trough for Merck. pork. Um, right. And, and it's a long list. Go look at the WEF because they're all the ones now that are going to save us from from, you know, from global warming and they need to control all health and all food to solve mm-hmm. all problems. It's a church. OK, it's a church. And and it's the opposite of either free market or free individual behaviors. So if you give people the freedom to choose and the knowledge, a lot of people will pay a premium for a healthier animal. You won't mm-hmm. need the antibiotics if you return it. But you can allow both. You can allow farrowing crates, gestation crates and non not make it more expensive for something that may not work. And and more and more, I'm excited to see more consumers who are aware want to pay the premium. They weren't aware, but now that they're aware, they want to pay the premium for a, a better treated uh, duck, chicken, cow, or pig, because mm-hmm. also they're going to have, they're going to be healthier. They're going to have, you know, less cortisol levels, better tasting meat, the qualities there, the health for them. And guess what? They should eat fat and they should eat eggs instead of Kellogg's. Yeah desiccated um uh cardboard uh yeah parading as as you know good for you people are waking up and so that and there's another threat here so if we remove the subsidies and we 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 relax the regulatory structures for small and you know medium-sized farms we would see them thrive as they Mm -hmm. should in a time of food inflation which is going to get worse the underlying food inflation and my background is in tax and finance and money supply we're seeing inflation in food, which is higher than the underlying rates of inflation. You don't see it talked about. Fertilizers have doubled or tripled. Uh, fossil fuel costs have come down, but they're staying high. Grain prices, which are a function of those, are higher. Everything that made industrial farming economically profitable, technological advances, et cetera, were dependent on cheap energy. And that's turning around. Energy will get more expensive over time, either because of scarcity of the fossil fuels or, and by the way, grass is a renewable energy. The cow is a renewable energy technology. Mm-hmm. It takes there, and it's renewable, not like the fake ones from China, the solar panels and the EV yeah. cars that destroy the planet, lithium mines, all the stuff they don't want you to look at. You know, the, yeah. in, in the process, cobalt. Well, just you don't. Oh yeah, no, no, it's endless. It's an absolute farce. And when people wake up to this, they might look at the cow a little differently and understand that that's renewable energy. That was God's provision. That's how him, by the way, we were always dependent on cow manure and even human manure to augment our soils before first guano, back guano, and then it was running out. And then we developed, voila, the magic scientific solution of synthetic fertilizers that that kill the microbes and kill Mm. that which gives life to plants which gives life to us and animals. So the whole thing is not sustainable in the sense that it is not even natural. And again, I'm not I'm not negating the need or the the liberty for people to choose to feed corn, you know, mm-hmm. even though it might be have a bigger environmental footprint, but it might be more profitable. I I just think that the idea of making it one size fits all and having the government dominate it all paralyzes yeah. everything. 
And that well, real exactly. action comes at the individual level, both by the consumer and the farmer. And the consumers need to buy from the farmers. They've cut us, they've cut the farmers out on milk for years. They cut yep. the farmers out on beef. They cut the farmers out on everything. Sell directly to consumers. Consumers are catching on too. And the consumers need to understand this stuff isn't just about farmers. It's about yeah. all of humanity and what we eat and feed our children and grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Every sorry, I'm just no, um, and that that's a that's a solid point. And there there's been this meme floating around uh, Facebook and and uh, social media for a while now, and it's and it's caused a little bit of a stir in the you know in the in the cattle business because it, it's it shows a a picture of uh, ground beef from that you buy at Walmart versus uh, that you'd buy from a farmer and it it's a little bit of a misleading meme um and but you got like a lot of a lot of people are like ah oh, you're you're putting putting the beef business uh, in a bad light because you know this is all inspected and whatever and blah 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 and, but there is a difference from buying from a farmer rancher directly versus buying from the the grocery store it's, it, at the end of the day it's the same product but in a one pound tube of hamburger that you buy, say, if you buy a beef from me, there's one animal that goes into that that tube of hamburger. In in those big packing plants, just of just by nature of how how they work, there's like five to six hundred animals that that comprise one tube of hamburger. And even though it's marked product of the USA, there's a good chance the actual the lean the muscle tissue that's in that that hamburger comes from Namibia, Brazil, Argentina, um, foreign countries. And I'm not saying it's bad beef. I, I think it's probably okay. But in the meanwhile, the, the high-quality beef that we produce here in the U.S., marbled, it produces a lot of waste. So I understand why they import lean product instead of – but they, they, they'd rather import it from foreign foreign countries rather than buy coal cows from, from the American rancher, which would, would uh, provide the same product. In the meanwhile, the 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 the, like the choice prime stuff, a large percent of that stuff gets exported. Never never even sees the American uh, dinner table. It all it all goes to you know China, Japan, not so much the EU, but it gets exported a lot. Huge quantities of beef that that a lot American... of the prime stuff, yeah go to go to pets in California for Nancy Pelosi's kitty cat. <laughs> you think that's no, they why prime, uh, they, have, you know, they have these prime cuts now for animals but sorry i was interjecting there and i interrupted i apologize well i was, I was, I was wondering do you think that's what uh that was why paul pelosi got his skull bashed in with a hammer was over a, like a bad pet food deal you jumped right on that i set that lob up for you you run with it kate <laughs> what was paul doing kate what was he what was he doing i think i think it was i think it was date night gone wrong i think so those yeah. gigolos are unpredictable. <laughs> Either way, there there was there can be no doubt that uh, Paul Pelosi definitely got smacked in the head with a hammer. That dude was snoring hard in, in that video. I feel bad for him. Uh, he that might, was horrible. He might be I'm an sorry, awful. I really person. get us off track now. That was all me. I'm really sorry, guys. <laughs> it's okay. It's Pelosi right. burger. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Pelosi. Oh man, that that might uh, that might be From the, the new. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that might be the new spot, the new hot spot in San Francisco. Instead of Wahlburger, it's Pelosi burger. Well, but but you know, but we did just hit on something, which is the huge hypocrisy that they're going after cow farts, but not cat and dog farts. We have like 90 million dogs mm -hmm. or something and they are eating about 25 percent of the nation's beef production 
whether it's you know domestic or international beef. But but back to what you're saying, yeah, people people want to know where the cow comes from. Why are they Why are they trying to shut down on farm slaughter and going after little guys like me when they've consolidated the beef industry? Because they want to control all market share, and whether it's mm-hmm. to dominate us for control through the government or to dominate us through control like any company that wants to make you addicted to their product at profit, whether yeah. it's whether it's a novel shot or or a novel uh, painkiller, you know, like oxycontin or synthetic, you know, uh, painkillers or anything else. And, and mm-hmm. they get, you know, they get, uh, so that's why they're moving with the patents because they can control it all. But I digress again, you're, you're dead on Matt about the importance of people buying food directly from their meat or from their farmer. That's also the only way you really know that it was grass fed or that, you know, it was treated well, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, Vermont tried to pass uh, tell us last year that in order to on-farm slaughter an animal, I had to have all of my customers present at slaughter per USDA requirements. That's not true. I've got, I've got the video of the lawyer saying this. The USDA hasn't said that. How ridiculous would it be for me selling 10 sheep to have to call everybody up from all over the state? You better come over today. Make sure you watch the cow die. The law requires it. If, right. If they don't require that at Cargill, do they? Are they requiring no. that of the American consumer when they grind no, 3,000 um, counter cows More often together? than not, they won't let they you in there to watch it either. Right. And again, I don't want to bash them because I think, you know, there are USDA facilities and some of them are, you know, very legitimate. So I don't think it does any of us good to. But but certainly that's why I raise my own animals and people might be shocked that I kill my own animals. But it's because I don't want to not have any responsibility for how the animal is treated. And more and more consumers are waking up to the, uh, we, we pay a price for that. And it's not just a moral price. You're going to get hormones. You're when, when there was, so most people, I wrote about this years ago and I should, but I think your listeners will see this. And this is my lawyer brain too. Mm-hmm. Some years ago, you may remember that there were animals, American pets dying of kidney failure because of melanin in Chinese dog food. Hmm. And at the time they banned, so, so the, they did the same thing with baby formula in China. This is why babies were having kidney failure and they, they executed corporate executives for this in China. We don't do that in America. We, we, we put them in positions like Fauci, you know, we yeah, advance them. Yeah, yeah we, we give but, them a, um, a bigger yeah, job. We give them a bonus um, and some, some free, you know, child grooming uh, assistance. Um, but anyway, so at the time I thought, well, as a farmer, I thought that's pretty, pretty shocking. So th- that they had this melanin in this dog food, because what they were doing was in order to be tested for export, they would test it for, I think, protein levels by testing, I think it was the nitrogen, and they would use melanin to mimic the protein. They were doing the same in the baby mm. form. So it was to get around regulatory control so it could be advertised as having a certain amount of protein, and it started killing dogs. So the feds got in and they and they stopped it. And I said to myself as a person with a business and other background, I said, well, what are they going to do with millions of tons of imported Chinese dog food? Okay, what they're not going to do is ship it back to China. Okay, they're not going to no. do that. They're not going to want to put it in a landfill. That costs money too. This is all about finding ways to turn liabilities into assets they can feed you, whether it's hydrogenated fat or high fructose corn syrup or, or, or Bill Gates' latest patented product. Okay, it's not about human health. It's always about product uh, profit. So I went and researched and did a deep dive, and I found out that all that melanin and all of that dog food found wound up exactly where I predicted it would end up, which is his animal feed. They fed it to pigs 
uh, the FDA, I think it was, it might've been the USDA, one of them, I got involved, tested some pigs, they ended up slaughtering and destroying, I think it was 12,000 pigs that were headed mm. for human ingestion. If you're going to want to trust your food supply, the further you are away from it, whether it be China other or otherwise, the more you can trust that a corporate profiteer with the lowest ethical standards available, if they have a name at all, has overseen what you're putting into your grandchildren's gullet. So that's why Americans should buy right from their farmers. And more people would get into farming if they could make more than 100 bucks a head a year on it. You know, people used to farm because it was lucrative. Yeah, and it will be again. So the more fuel prices and fertilizer prices go up, the more local is going to be more affordable, better quality and more competitive. And the entire short term blip of the industrial revolution, the green revolution in agriculture can flip. And whether yeah. or not it still struggles along, let you go keep doing it the way you want. But more and more, it's going to be it's going to be cost efficient for me to sell you a grass fed animal here in Vermont because I don't have to pay $900 a ton for grain, right? Mm -hmm. And you do. And all of a sudden your feedlot, even though you've got all kinds of overheads and I'm just like, yeah, let my renewable energy creatures wander around and, and turn it into fat. Now, of course my winter is seven and a half months long and it's absolutely, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I'm trying to put up 240 days of feed right now. If you can imagine yeah. that for winter. So yeah. I'm very jealous, but I don't have to pump water out of the ground all day long with big sprinklers to go around in circles to water hundreds of acres of land. That to me is just like, that's like Mars. That's another world to me to go in Colorado or Wyoming. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty wild. Um, it should be in the middle. We could trade. I'll take a shorter yeah. winter and you can have some of my water. There's me in Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I made it. Uh, a vow to myself a while back that I I ain't ever living east of the Mississippi. It's I, like I, I'm I'm a Western kid and I always will be. But I, right, I I'll go I'll go back and visit you guys anytime. I mean I I, I love I love seeing new places. But uh, I I was born on the on the high plains and now I live in the high desert and uh, I I like it's it, it suits me pretty well. But um, a quick little aside, you were you were talking earlier about. Um, fascism and i wonder this and this is just like uh from from my mind it seems like post world war ii the entire world including china the world's largest communist country china's not even communist anymore china is full-on fascist america is fascist the eu is fascist but you you notice the the number one bad guy they always bring up is Hitler, which for good reason. Don't get me wrong; I'm not saying he was a good guy. He but, was a socialist. Uh huh. But they uh, go ahead. Yeah, they, go ahead. Yeah. They they were like, all right, let's let's tone down the whole Jew hating thing, but let's keep the rest of it all. And uh, and that's why we imported sixteen hundred Nazi scientists in Oper Operation Paperclip, whether yeah, they be. Yeah. Physicists, nuclear, you know, rocket technicians, uh, you know, uh, medical doctors, agricultural executives. I mean, IG Farben is still around today, and they were, they held the patent for Zyklon B gas, mm -hmm. and um, they they built their entire uh, imp, you know, the 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 empire post um, the post Weimar Republic was all built on slave labor, whether they be Jews or Slavs or gays or whoever else, you know, and we, we kind of, 
toned down the slave labor a little bit, but we kept the huge uh, collusion between uh, corporate interests and and uh, and a centralized government. And and it, they virtually every every major economic power in the world did the same thing post post World War II. And uh, we found out that fascism works really good for a while until it doesn't and and we're we're kind of at that point like we i think we hit the shelf life of uh of a fascist government you know it's it's starting to crumble around us but um what what's your thoughts on that well my thought is that you're such a merry sunshine uh, <laughs> I, I knew it was coming i knew it was coming because you said the word fascism and and the catester lit up in a smile and i'm like oh i'm into something here I think that throughout history, people have fought against those who seek power and control over other people for personal advancement. You know, it's a mm-hmm. story as long as, as uh, from, from Adam in the garden, you know, um, mm-hmm. in all of our traditions. And so we've always had to be vigilant against it. And, and I think that a lot of us are waking up in shock because we could have an arg- a discussion about how long we've really been under an illusion of liberty in America and how long mm-hmm. we've really been, have we ever been in our lifetimes, really free. Uh, Not you really. Back to, you could, yeah, you, it, it could get depressing. But whatever mm. your timeline is, we're waking up now on mass. We've mm. got two groups of people. And actually, you know, I, I would paraphrase an historian named John Lukacs, who was really brilliant. And he said, there are only two kinds of people in the world. He said, those who do and those who don't, do not understand that we're nearing the end of an age, an industrial mm. age that was built upon and dependent upon and thrived upon a short-term use of cheap energy. And we used mm-hmm. a lot of that in folly and, and we still are. And, you know, nobody wants to think about going back to land or back to the farm or having to work by the sweat of their brow, but you know, that's way better than starvation. And we live in There's a culture. There's a lot of people turning that way now though. There are. And, and, and there are also, and I think COVID really gave us a, a gift in a way, because I mm-hmm. think a lot of people weren't just shocked out of the cities and now flocking to Vermont and other places to escape, uh, what they saw, which were plugged hospitals, even though they were empty, uh, and uh, and and um, and police lockdowns, um, even though there was no real threat. Um, but I think they also just realized that they were already unhappy anyway. Yeah. And um, we've had other movements like this in the past. And if we study Wendell Berry and Joel Salatin and Aldo Leopold and others who were more um, wisdomful, Will was, Harris is another one out of out of Georgia. Will Harris, he's yes, really I'd love guy. to talk with him, and he's got a big operation. And he drinks whiskey. That's how he fuels his farm. I know. I read up on him. Good whiskey, right? Isn't that him? I don't want to belong in <laughs> Will, but I think I read. I think I read a story about him. I think I think I read in his newsletter. Actually, I've read his newsletter and uh, bourbon. Um, but whatever you know, whatever gets to get her done. You that's know, the, that's the original American crop, isn't it? It's bourbon. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I think tobacco is there too. Um, tobacco. Hamp was also Native American. Hemp was there, pretty hemp prominent. Was there. As well. Jefferson and those guys—they grew hemp. Um, I think they were using it for for ropes for horses more than uh, to fill their pipes. But uh, at any rate, but so so agriculture is there. And so uh, I digress. You were asking about the the fascism, and I think that um, when people so West Jackson writes about how the American Indians were destroyed because. They were, aside from whatever else, it wasn't blankets, it wasn't smallpox, it wasn't guns, it wasn't the erasure of the bison. It was the pollution of their culture 
with the things without which they could not live. The idea mm-hmm. that once they became addicted to certain things, they couldn't, they, it corrupted, they couldn't go back happily to the native land. And we have a lot of things without which we cannot live from phones to electric switches. And so we have, we have a, a lot of skin in the game as far as our comforts and we don't want to mm-hmm. sacrifice our comforts. When we fought the British as in the American revolution, you gave up your comforts. If you went to fight the British, you didn't have as many comforts, but you valued them. One of them was food. So when they taxed your tea or your sugar, that was a real pisser. That really pissed you off. And then they came in and they housed troops in your homes to eat your food and your larder mm-hmm. and take from your crops. Well, now you're going to risk everything to keep everything. And until you have all your skin in the game, you won't risk any skin. And at that time, you didn't have life insurance if you got shot or killed. There were no veterans benefits. Your family would sacrifice everything you own in your farmstead and your homestead. It was all on the line. And it was only a small percentage of us who did it. Where are we mm-hmm. now? We're finding them. And we're finding them in the cities and in the country. And we're finding them waking up to the fascism. So mm-hmm. from time to time, the agricultural requirement is that the tree of liberty be watered with the blood of tyrants. And yep. it is time for the farmers to have that harvest. Our It's not our almond trees that need watering. It's our liberty tree. And right. I will keep fighting. And that's what my book is about for conservatives to wake up to their vulnerability you know, while you're snoozing and being and, and getting fat at the wheel, whether it's of a tractor or your car, you've got people coming in your candy store and they're going to dominate and they're going to make your children sterile, not just with hormones, but with your food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sperm rates are plummeting for our young boys. Colon rate, colon cancer rates are increasing very fast. Mm-hmm. Could it be PFAs in 45 percent of American groundwater? That's impacting, according to the EPA, I think just a week or so ago, 40, 64 million Americans have been drinking it since the 40s. And yeah. you don't even have warning labels on most of your household products that they're there. And there are hundreds of these chemicals. And it's taken 80 years for the EPA to regulate that. They did it in March of this year. And the EPA still says that glyphosate is not a human carcinogen. All right. Mm-hmm. The international bodies have said that it is, but the EPA, who goes along with carbon, and the intergovernmental planet on climate change, they're okay with that science. Oh, but no, don't touch our American companies for their glyphosate. You know, don't touch yeah. them for their atrazine. Don't touch them for their aspartame. Because, well, we profit off that. And we might, like the Nazis, want to sell them some Zygon gas sometime or maybe some Agent Orange. They're, yeah. It, this is a toxic <laughs> poison. Of Agent Orange, yeah. So, so, anyway, that, so that, welcome that to was fascism. One of the- Unfortunately, fascists get cancer too. Just there's your yeah. Home. Uh, that's true. That's true. Um, one of the one of the big turning points for me in in viewing this whole agricultural system that I that I grew up in, um, you know, I was I was a staunch uh, defender of GMOs without really knowing anything about them. I just like the studies say they're safe. I never read the studies, never read the studies. But then I read a lot. Not. No, I guess not even a lot. I, I read just enough on um, Agent Orange to to start to peel back those layers. And so, like, I I went and and I read uh, some some really in depth articles. Um, and this was in the eighties, you know, past past the Vietnam War. But I forget the numbers that that we dumped on on South Vietnam in particular. But it, it's a uh, it was a awful thing and then we had thousands uh, of uh vietnam veterans 
with with uh, life life threatening illnesses that were directly linked to Agent Orange, and essentially it came down to a piss and match between the federal government and Monsanto as to who was actually liable for it when eleven million gallons on Vietnam. That's a lot of that's a and yeah, that's a lot that's a lot of Agent Orange, and yeah, and and eventually. Like, they were both at fault. Monsanto knew that there was major health concerns, and that's why it wasn't a commercially viable, uh, you know, available product. But uh, they're just Vietnamese, right? Who cares? And, um, yeah, and then, then, you know, years later, it was, it was essentially a fight between Monsanto and the government of over who had to take uh, credit for it or take responsibility. And on, it was both of them. They, they both knew. And um, and Monsanto was more than happy to sell 11 million gallons of it to the federal government to dump on South Vietnam, and regardless of what the impact was, and they knew they knew back then that it that it caused all these illnesses. Well, and well, back to the GMOs because uh, and and not to differ with you at all, and I think actually the history is there is that they were selling a cheaper to manufacture form. Mm-hmm. Uh, of of the uh, agent orange and that was part of it that you know so if we use the good agent orange then it would be all right but they knew they were dropping it not just on what they would call gooks but on u.s service personnel yeah. they have often used our human service personnel for guinea pigs including for radiation we know mm-hmm. about silkwood we know about a love canal we know about all sorts of stories where corporations somehow magically you know these 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 uh citizens united people corporations um hide what they do just like they're human sinners you know mm-hmm. so why would we trust them with gmos so so coming back to your gmo issue because i think it's really important and i'll bring not just a farmer or some kind of uh, chemical alarmist um but a lawyer's mind to this and by the way i want to say that chemical alarmist again we've got people that are alarming about cow farts while ignoring cow manure the gas uh-huh. over the soil and they're alarming over carbon dioxide while they're silent over all the chemicals you know, mm-hmm. chemicals and opposing not toxic chemicals is something that once united Americans. And so are we divided over GMOs? If you want to eat GMO crops, that's great. You gobble them right up. I just want to have reliable labeling so I can wait and see what happens to you. Mm-hmm. When Teflon came out, some of us didn't like Teflon. Oh, you're an idiot. It's fine. Now, guess what Teflon is? Oh, it's PFAs, phthalates, BPA yeah. in mm-hmm. our canned food. The list is very long, thalidomide. So... But let's say all the studies, which themselves are biased, Wendell Berry has shown us this, we see it now. We see biased studies on mRNA vaccines. We see yeah. biased studies on the origin of COVID. It's like there's, it's almost like there's political bias in the science, Matt. So when yeah. GMOs, assuming, assuming you gave me solid science that GMOs are the equivalent of natural uh, uh, plants, and because I think there, there are studies that show that, we don't really have them. Um, well, what, what does that mean? If the if the product, the end product and the in the GMO potato is safe, let's say, um, is it saturated with other chemicals that are not safe? Is it is it being uh, grown using chemicals, the employment of which destroy the microbiome, destroy other ancillary microorganisms, or maybe bees or butterflies or insects, or have some other consequences that we haven't contemplated because we didn't test for them? We don't have mm-hmm. long term tests. Or what happens if after you tested glyphosate really thoroughly, 
it interacts with other chemicals or atrazine or other natural chemicals or, or phthalates or PFAs. Gosh, 100 years from now, maybe we'll look for that. How do you get mm -hmm. the mercury back out of trout once you put it in there? How do you get the dioxin back out of the soil? And these with so many chemicals, we don't even know the names of them. And we're developing about 3,000 new chemicals a year. We don't test them. We pour them into the environment. Oh, but the carbon. Oh, but you're mm -hmm. not. You're supposed to get an EV car while we create more chemicals to use in our EV car. So you can have your backup camera and all your doodads. But last but not least, here's the lawyer part. You could have the best GMO product in the world. You've eliminated 93 or 94% of heirloom vegetables. Remember what happened to the Irish when they were dependent on one type of potato? Yeah. It's a famine. You have one product, a GMO, and maybe it's medically and chemically and environmentally just the greatest thing since white bread, which wasn't that good. But you own it. And when you own it, to my exclusion, you control me. When you own the patent to mRNA vaccines and you also have free advertising and mandatory use of your product and full insulation and immunity from any liability from the federal agencies that you dominate, you can stick your GMO crap right up your corporate butt and you have a <laughs> blast, Bill Gates. That's, that's why, you know, go ahead, free market. I'm not trying to ban GMOs. Just label mm -hmm. them so I can keep them away. And I want to keep your drift out of my, pro out of my crops. I don't mm -hmm. want your... I don't want your pesticides drifting. I don't want your pollen drifting anymore. Uh, but why is everything upside down? So it's destroying the small farmer and advancing the corporate conglomerate. Well, I think you hit it, Matt. I think it's called fascism. And it's yeah. time for us to wake up. And if you don't have your food, you don't have your guns and your bullets. So support yeah. your small farmer or, or perish because of famine and lack of something so fundamental that you took it so for granted that you allowed it to be swept right from under your nose while you were bickering over race, gender, and gun rights. Mm. That's the eye to keep your eye on, or the ball to keep your eye on. Sorry. I'll, uh, I'll send you a link to this book. Um, as a history professor that I had on here a while back, he's from Chicago, and he's, he's like a diehard Chicago guy. He's a, a third-generation Polish immigrant. <clears throat> well, his, his, uh, his grandparents were immigrated from Poland, around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, his grandfather was an unskilled worker in the, in the, in the packing uh, town. And, and he wrote a book called Slaughterhouse. And as to date, it's the best, it's the best telling of the story of Chicago that I've, I've come across. Like he come at it from just uh, as a Chicago kid, a guy that, that worked in, in the Union stockyards at the very last days. Like he, he even worked after they officially closed down for a couple months. And, uh, and he just tells the story of how the Union stockyards came to be, how it, how it like thrust Chicago in the world spotlight of, uh, and, and made it such a powerhouse. And then how once it closed down, and like initially it decentralized, you know, when, when they closed down the union stockyards, it started to decentralize the beef industry, but little did they know it just re-centralized it in these, these out of the way, small towns that nobody goes to. And, um, and it, but it's the same old tactics of, uh, of centralizing, pushing the small guy out and then controlling the market. I mean, it's, it's been, it's been kind of the name of the game, but, um, he, he points that to that, the closing of the, the union stockyards in, in 1971, he said, he said, I don't think it's necessarily the, 
the straw that that broke the camel's back necessarily but he said that that was one one moment in time that kind of started the ball rolling to the decline of the of the like the family farm in America <laughs> and it, and it was um it was a point when like the bridge between urban and rural was was kind of broken almost for good because before then you had the rancher and probably a couple of his cowboys that they they drove their cattle to the to the railhead whether it be in Kansas or Missouri or Texas wherever but typically they followed their cattle into town they spent the night in in uh in Chicago or Omaha Kansas City wherever and they spent a night on the town they got to mingle with the the pack and plant workers they built you know they built friendships built bonds and um and then they had to go shop their cattle in the stockyards they had to they had to go try to get the best price they could and now <clears throat> like we don't have that and there's this huge huge chasm between urban and rural and and i think the direct to consumer type of product is is what bridges that gap again Well, and I think that's why CSAs and farmers markets are growing is people are, mm. are craving that because they've missed it. Uh, but also they're seeing the benefits. I mean, that's something also that my, my book addresses because, you know, this is easy for us as, you know, white skinned elitists to say, you know, that we can mm. go to farmers markets. But and so you know, I'm being playful there. You know, we, we would be dismissed because, you know, a lot of people can't afford that. And so they eat cheap food and they eat the bad food. So. Well, but that cheap, bad food is there because of the policies we're trying to reverse. It is right. artificially cheap because it has been subsidized, as we've been discussing. Mm -hmm. And um, and it, but it also is the antidote to that um, that alienation you talk about. Rome fell by some theories because of bickering by uh, its Congress. It's you know, its Senate, our Congress, mm -hmm. many parallels to today. Well, barbarian hordes started to take over the uh, infrastructure of, of agriculture that surrounded Rome. Rome eventually mm -hmm. was taking its food supplies for granted as an urban uh, island in an agrarian area. I'm, I'm maybe oversimplifying. We don't really know, but it makes a lot of sense. And it's what we're doing now. Now we're doing mm -hmm. something a little different. We're going in the direction of globalization. We're becoming yeah. more and more dependent on, on food that we don't really know how it was grown, sourced, or treated. Avocados from, from Mexico, right? Which might be fine, but like you said, that that uh, that day and time when people, um, when there was a chain of custody of the cow, um, mm -hmm. actually here in Vermont, they used to walk tens of thousands of turkeys to the Boston Market um, every <laughs> fall. It was an event, and at night they what, could all. What did they call those turkey wranglers, by chance? Oh, I I don't know, Kate. Kate's asleep. She would a turkey know. wrangler. She would know. I don't know, but there's there's a really good book though we used for homeschooling that was about the the Great Turkey Walk or Turkey March. I'll have to bring it up, but it, it actually is a banned book because the I think it was the N word was used in it, but uh -oh. it was actually not it was not in a disparaging way. And I actually I ended up getting our copy of it for our homeschooling on a dime budget because it was getting thrown out from our local library and i i got i got a couple copies of it and it's a i think it's there called she the great is. Yeah, it's is wonderful. It, yeah admitting how she searched out to find a white supremacist book with the n-word <laughs> this is why i didn't want to be associated with you bowen 
You know, now people say, oh, look, R supports the N-word in a book, even if it's used. It is an amazing book about about a, a young person driving turkeys, and it is a fascinating well, uh, bit of history. I won't admit that I would love to read it because the story is, is great. And from what I've heard about, it, I'm sure I'd enjoy it. And that, uh, in fact, so at night, if they were in a certain area and the turkeys want to roost at night, they'll go on the on the lo nearest barn or in the trees and they crush roofs. They crushed buildings. They crushed things. Anyway, huh. we've digressed completely from your analogy, um, except that people were connected directly to their mm -hmm. food. So that urban rural uh, divorce that you talk about was only possible through the so-called gift of the miracle of modern agriculture, which mm -hmm. is Wendell Berry has been telling us, you know, when you lose your farms, you, do you know, you know, Wendell Berry? Matt, you know who he is, the writer of um, I, I, I'm vaguely aware of him. I haven't read any of his stuff that I know of, but I'll, I'll so, put yeah, him on so, my list. Yeah, well, I should explain, too, for your listeners, too. I mean, he's been writing about this for 60 years, and he's a Kentucky farmer. And his dad was a, a farmer and a lawyer, which is kind of where I got inspired to combine those disciplines a little bit. Wendell really gave me hope because he was writing years ago, before I was born even, about these problems. And um, so, but what he says, so when I went to meet him on his farm a year or two ago, I said, Wendell, you know, what I'm trying to do in my book is I'm trying to explain to people what's happened to our culture when we lost our farms. And he, and he, and he, and he was, you know, he's not a conservative. So he thought that was weird coming from a Republican. And I said, well, have you ever heard the, uh, the, the joke about the country Western song? And he said, and he's, I think Wendell just turned 89 this month. I think he's 89. Kate, look it up. And please, I'm being nice. <laughs> I love you, Kate. I love you, Kate. So, so Wendell Berry, I, he says, no, I don't think I ever have. So I said, well, what do you get when you play a country Western song backwards? And he says, what do you get? And I said, well, you get your car back, you get your dog back, you get your wife back, you get your job back. <laughs> Are you hearing back? What do you play when you, what do you get when you play Wendell Berry's The Unsettling of America, his 1973 book, backwards? When you put the farms back into rural America, well, you get your sawmill back, your grain dealer back, your equipment dealer back, your school teacher mm -hmm. and your school children back. You get your family back. You get your health back. You get healthier animals back. You don't have to worry about humane welfare treatment anymore. If, if you see your neighbors not feeding your cow, you either go feed it or you tell them, go feed your cow. You don't get your cow from Cargill anymore. You, you reverse the fascist advent by becoming human again. That's how you play the industrial desecration of our nation and our souls backwards. That's how you do it. So Wendell already gave mm. us the recipe. And my book tries to lay out and build on his work along with Joel Salatin and others about how to not let bureaucrats tell us that we don't need a pond to collect water in because the ducks might spread avian flu. All right. How stupid yeah. can stupid get before we wake up? Well, and how do you think the response has been though, John? Like, I mean, I know, with more conservative, independent, fresh ideas in Vermont when he ran for governor. Thank you very much. Uh, when he did that, you know, we hit up a lot of opposition and people that were sort of the useful idiots who just couldn't see what was happening to them. They just couldn't believe what we were trying to find remedies for because they couldn't even see the problem. So, of course, they couldn't see the solution. But how has, with the book launch, how has that prod 
process gone. I mean, this is something that these are all ideas you've had for the last 20 or 30 years. And how has that, you know, unfurled? I mean, this is not a self-published book. Mm. This is published Chelsea Green. I mean, other people have weight in the game, skin in the game as well, um, you know, backing yeah. these ideas. So how has that gone? Well, I think that, and not to flatter, that's a really great question and something to reflect upon. So let me share. So first of all, Vermont versus elsewhere. I, Vermont is amazingly progressive. And for your listeners, Bernie Sanders is not from here. And we don't talk like that. You should hear some old Vermonters. I'm going to record some of them for my podcast on my The Substack. millionaires and the billionaires. Yeah, yeah. It's just, and it, what a horrible thing. And But that itself is a symptom of the death of our culture. But let's just be frank. The, the far left um, ideological illness that has infested like locusts our land, that is highly concentrated here in Vermont, they don't care about children or black people or poor people or the environment or anything else. It's really tragic to say this, but they don't care. And the way you can tell is that they're not going to support a young black person's opinion at the state house if it doesn't accord with their cult. They're not right. going to support a young child's mental health if the child doesn't want hormones or thinks there are only two genders. They're going to throttle that child and make them change in front of other people who have gender differences biologically with them. They're going to compel that child to call a man a they. It's happening right now in Vermont. They're going to mm -hmm. well, and interject that interject that in Vermont, an African American person was kicked off of their select board or DEI committee. I can't remember what it was. Uh, what was it, John? You probably know the details of this, but that's uh, just an it was, example. It was their version of a DEI committee. That's Keith Longmore. He doesn't mind you. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Keith is a friend, supporter, and a big fan of the book. He's read the book. He's been promoting the book, but he's black. And so they don't care about him. In fact, they want to shut him down and call him an Uncle Tom. In other words, these are white people manipulating and controlling a black person <clears throat> from having his free views for their own political power and advancement. Do you think that they want a conservative like me advocating for small farms? I'm told that a certain political pundit here in Vermont recently wrote an article slamming my book. If I wanted to rescue african orphans and give them food and treat their aids i'd be attacked for it as a conservative i'm not listening to those people i'm talking to the people who are still decent and have a brain mm -hmm. and ears who can hear they're listening so in answer to your question i never really expected to read they are showing me the litmus test of their stupidity mm -hmm. that the left would rather move further into the green new deal which wendell berry dramatically opposes okay and give government infinite power over them while they say they're about saving the environment and farmers, they don't want us muscling in and supporting farmers. They own the climate. They own the farmers. The farmers, yep. they failed. The farmers that they want to throw out of Vermont in favor of Ben and Jerry's toxic goop made in China <laughs> by Unilever. All right. So th this is a gift because it's parting the sheep from the goat, so to speak. It's But what I'm excited about is that I'm here, that I did two podcasts a couple of days ago. I've been doing podcasts all over the place. And it, it may not have hit, you know, Tucker Carlson and uh, Joe Rogan yet, but it will. And I don't care if it's my book. These ideas about cow's food and food liberty are going to take off and grow. And they're like wildfire. So well, I'm excited to be part of that. We're guys. both only one degree of separation from Joe Rogan. So, I mean, we're. Well, let's uh, get I've him on it. the line. Joe, I where know, are you? I, I know. I've had Evan Hafer, who's been on 
Joe Rogan multiple times. You know Joel Salatin, who's been on Joe Rogan several times. Like we're we're literally one degree of separation, so it's it's not all that un- implausible. But um, if you got like another twenty minutes, I've got to pee real bad. But we'll uh, we'll do a little bonus segment for for my Patreon people. And uh, if if you got is that time. when is that where you pee? Is that the bonus segment? I, I'm gonna do it. I, I'm gonna do it right here, right in front of you. Yes. Twenty seconds is the average. Well, I'll. You know, uh, so if you're sixty fold, you definitely probably should, you know, get some saltpeter <laughs> or or maybe some rice to soak up the the excess. Yeah, go, go use the. You want to leave a sign, Kate and I'll talk about well, you behind your being back. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll put the my uh, my theme song on, and uh, then we'll come back and do we'll do like another twenty minutes or so. Um, good. I had an idea. I guess before we go. Um, I'm going to read your book and uh, let's say, well, no, not not today, (laughs) not today. I don't, I don't have time today. I don't have it with me today. Um, But what I'd like to do is um, maybe here in a couple months, um, I'll I'll make it like my, my book club book of the month. And uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll promote it. And then uh, if anybody's got some questions for you, we'll do, we'll do a podcast here in a couple months and do like a Q and a, based just solely on the book that'd be great awesome well uh tell tell everybody where they can find your your stuff your book your all your writing and then we'll uh we'll come back here in a minute for and do and do a i've got a couple other books i want to talk about so um anyway where where can they find you so my website is smallfarmrepublic.com which links also to my Substack newsletter, which is free, which is also called Small Farm Republic. Uh, I'm also writing now as a staff writer for Liberty Nation. Um, Some of my other writing will be out there in other publications. I've written for a lot of them. And uh, I'm actually going to be starting to write for Christian News Service. And I'm writing for Door to Freedom with Dr. Merrill Nass, about, uh, particularly about globalist issues and the WHO and the World Economic Forum and their efforts to dominate our food. And those are the areas that I'm focusing in is is food and climate. Frankly, didn't want to get into climate, but it was unavoidable because it's also wrapped together increasingly with agriculture. So smallfarmrepublic.com is the quick answer or the books available at Chelsea Green Publishing or at Amazon, Small Farm Republic. All right. Awesome. Well, John, I I really enjoyed the conversation I I did last time as well. And I'm looking forward to reading this book. Go go uh, go check it out. We'll have it as the as the book of the month, and yeah, like I said, we'll come back and do a a Q and A with you, and we'll we'll try to make it like a call in show. So I think that could be pretty fun. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, John. Uh, go follow Kate Meadowdale Farm. Um, all all of her all of her homesteading madness that she's got going on. And um, thanks everybody for tuning in. If you want to hear the bonus section patreon.com slash burning daylight that's also the best way to support the show you get ad free content you get bonus content and uh you get the episodes earlier than everybody else and i can buy more beer to get tell more dick jokes with so please do it and um yeah john i appreciate you everybody else thanks for tuning in and move your ass we're burning daylight As we sat on the front porch of that old gray house where I was born.
Stared out at the dusty fields where Daddy always worked hard every day. I think it kind of hurt him when I said, Daddy, there's a lot that I don't know. But don't you ever dream about a life where corn don't grow. Just sat there silent, staring in his favorite coffee cup. I saw a storm of mixed emotion in his eyes when he looked up. He said, "Son, I know at your age it feels like this old world is turning slow." And you think you'll find the answer to it all where corn don't grow. Hard times are real. There's dusty fields no matter where you go. You may change your mind 'cause the weeds are high where corn don't grow. When Daddy turned and walked back in the house, I was only seventeen back then, but it seems like I knew more than I do now. I can't say he didn't tell me this city life's a hard road to hoe. It's funny how a dream can turn around. Where corn don't grow. Hard times are real. There's dusty fields, no matter where you go. You may change your mind, 'cause the weeds are high. Where corn don't grow. You may change your mind, 'cause the weeds are high. Don't move.